0: In the days after his trip to the UK, Superintendent O'Connell pinned Antoinette Smith's face to the display board alongside the missing women. Victim seven had brown hair, a girl-next-door smile and a young Princess Diana hairstyle. He felt the same sense of frustration as he had when the case was being investigated in Tallaght Station in Dublin. She had met a gruesome end, been dumped in the Dublin Wicklow Mountains like unwanted rubbish two young children were deprived of their mother it was a miracle she'd been found at all if the killer had had his way her family and friends might never have known what happened same MO as Larry Murphy's rape victim he told the trace detectives Larry Murphy would have been 23 years old at the time he ran through her incidentals Antoinette was a 27 year old separated mother of two she disappeared on July 11th, 1987, after attending the David Bowie concert in Slane with her friends. Her badly decomposed remains turned up on April 3rd, 1988, at the feather beds near the Glendoo Woods in Killakey on the Glen Cullen Mountain in South Dublin. A young boy playing football on a day out with his family had chased the ball towards a ditch and spotted a human hand. Antoinette was from Clondalkin in West Dublin, After the concert, she'd gotten a bus from Slane back to Dublin with her friends. They'd gone for a drink in the Harp Bar on O'Connell Bridge and on to Le Mirage Nightclub off Parnell Square and there Antoinette had chatted to a barman she knew. She left with him, one of her friends and another man at 2am. The four couldn't agree where to go next and Antoinette and the barman split from the other two and headed down O'Connell Street together where they also parted. Where she went next was based on information that came about as a result of a public appeal. An abracababra worker in Westmoreland Street claimed to have served her and said he saw her strike up conversation with two men on the street outside the restaurant after she left. He said Antoinette had gotten into a taxi with the men. This version of events was corroborated by a taxi driver who recalled two men outside Abracabra on Westmoreland Street leaning in the cab that night asking him how much a fare to Rathfarnham would cost. The driver remembered a young woman arriving over and striking up a conversation with the men. Shown a picture of Antoinette Smith, the driver felt sure it was the same woman he'd seen. He said Antoinette was drunk and didn't know the men. All three got in the cab and he took them to Rathfarnham, but he said he'd been nervous for the whole journey after one of the men started joking about attacking him and robbing the cab. There was an edge to the way the passenger had said it, the driver recalled, and he believed that the man meant it. It was 4am when the driver dropped all three at the Yellow House pub in Rathfarnham, leading to Edmonston Road, a straight run up the mountains to Johnny Fox's pub and to Kill a Key, where Antoinette's body was found. The driver said the trio got out and walked in the opposite direction towards Rathfarnham Village, where he left them. This was the last possible sighting they had of Antoinette alive. The next day, a man walking his dog up the mountain between 6am and 7am may have seen the same men. After parking in a car park near Tibraddon Woods, he began walking his dog up the mountain when two men appeared from the middle of nowhere, heading in the opposite direction. The witness felt something about them wasn't right. One was going out of his way, not to say hello, As there was no other car in the car park they could have been heading for, the man turned around and went back down to his own, worried they were going to steal it. When he got there, they were nowhere to be seen. And despite numerous public appeals, the men never came forward, suggesting they didn't want to be found. Here, the trail ran cold. His name still strikes fear across Ireland. A hunter who stalked his prey in the heart of the area known as the Vanishing Triangle. But where is Larry Murphy now? And why is he a suspect in the murder of teenager Deirdre Jacob and the mystery disappearance of Jojo Dullard and Annie McCarrick? Now, in a Crime World mini-series, we present Predator. Larry Murphy and Ireland's Missing Women. A chilling true crime special. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. If Antoinette Smith had been killed by the same man responsible for any of the other missing women's cases, police would have had their first crime scene. That had been the key to cracking a 20-year murder mystery the previous year, also linked to the heart of the Dublin Wicklow Mountains. Phyllis Murphy left her home in Newbridge, County Kildare, on December 22, 1979 to do some last-minute Christmas shopping. She was 23 years old. As well as buying presents, the young factory worker had a perm done in a salon in Newbridge, called in to see her brother, dropped into a friend's house to let her know she'd meet her in town later to go to a dance, then, laden with shopping bags, her 60p bus fare tucked inside her mitten, stood at a bus stop near the Keydean Hotel, where she was last seen. Her body was found a month later at Ballina a wood near the Wicklow Gap. A post-mortem revealed 25 injuries suffered before she'd been raped and strangled and included a broken jaw. Phyllis's belongings were found scattered along the route. Her clothes had been burned at Lockstown Upper on the Glendalough Road, County Wicklow. The presents she'd been carrying were discovered in Ronockstown in County Kildare and the 60p was still in her mitten found at Colgan's Cut near the Curra in County Kildare. A neighbour... John Crearer, became a suspect after denying he even knew Phyllis. Since she used to babysit for him, his was one of 50 blood samples taken from suspects in an attempt to match a blood type to the rapist's seminal fluid, which was as far as science went back then. Crearer's blood type matched the killer's and as a farmer had reported seeing a Datsun head up the gap around the time, Phyllis had been abducted, which was the same make as Crearer's car. He became a major suspect. However, As he had a watertight alibi, the case had stalled and the samples were put into storage. When new DNA techniques were applied to the case 20 years on, there was a one in a thousand million chance of anyone other than John Crearer having raped Phyllis Murphy. The man who'd given Crearer his alibi, Patrick Bulger, admitted he'd lied so Crearer wouldn't lose his job. It turned out that the then 31-year-old Crearer had also been shopping in Newbridge with his wife on the day he murdered Phyllis Murphy. He had returned home to the Woodside Park in Kildare before ever picking Phyllis up. Then the ex-army sergeant headed out again to McWeese for a drink before he was due to start work as a security man in the Black & Decker factory at 8pm. In the pub, he'd met a friend, Patrick Bulger, also on duty in the security hut that night. Creer did not go straight to work, but headed four miles north, stopping at Phyllis's bus stop between 6.30pm and 6.45pm. What transpired next had gone with her to the grave. He probably asked her if she wanted a lift. She probably accepted because she knew and trusted him. Instead, Creer drove her to Colgan's Cut near the Curra, where Phyllis tried to run with her shopping bags. He raped and strangled her, picked up the presents and put her body in the boot. He drove 24 miles east towards the Wicklow Mountains and then he went to work arriving just over half an hour late and claiming his car had broken down. He had it off again, this time saying he was going to play darts. And he came back after 11.30pm and fell asleep in the hut. Patrick Bulger gave him an alibi because the two of them were supposed to be on duty in the hut at all times. Nailing Crearer as Phyllis Murphy's killer was the trace team's finest hour and now the families of the missing women were praying for similar breakthroughs. But if Antoinette Smith's case belonged on the board with the others, there was another murdered woman who could not be ignored either because she had been found strangled in the same spot, less than a mile from Antoinette Smith. Her name was Patricia Doherty. Yet another woman's photograph was tacked to the board for consideration. Patricia had big eyes, a strong jaw and an 80s perm. Her body was recovered from the exact same stretch of mountain bog as Antoinette Smith's after a man cutting turf in the feather beds came across her body at Glassamuckey near a monument to Sean Lamass on the Dublin Wicklow County border. She was still wearing the biscuit coloured Macintosh coat she'd left her house in after heading out to do some last minute Christmas shopping. Patricia Doherty, nee Moriarty, was 30 and also had two young children. She was originally from Lisselton, County Kerry, but living in Talla with her Donegal husband, Patrick, a factory worker. She'd gone missing on the evening of December 23rd, 1991 and was last seen outside the Londis shop in the Oldbourne shopping centre waiting for a bus. Patricia had been working as a secretary in the Ballycrag National School in Talla, attended by her own 10-year-old son and 8-year-old daughter. But she'd started a new job as a prison officer in Mountjoy shortly before she died. Her husband did not report her disappearance to Gardaí until Christmas morning, saying he thought she'd gone to work. And the following June, she was found by a turf cutter in the feather beds. She'd been strangled and buried there. But did her case belong with the others? Patricia had not been strangled with her bra and there was was no plastic bag over her head when she was found. Could it just be a huge coincidence? The area was the perfect dumping ground because it was so vast and remote, yet less than an hour from the city centre. And if Patricia Doherty's case was included in the hunt for links to Larry Murphy, shouldn't other cases qualify too? 20-year-old Patricia Furlong from Dundrum in Dublin had been strangled and her semi-naked body had been found dumped in Glen Cullen in 1982. Patricia had been attending the Froghan Festival when she was murdered after leaving a marquee behind Johnny Fox's pub in Enniscary with disc jockey Vinnie Connell. Connell who had a history of violence towards women and had previously tried to strangle a fiancée, was convicted of the furlong murder. But this conviction was quashed and he died in 1998, technically an innocent man. Then there was 25-year-old Priscilla Clark, who had disappeared from Enniscary on May 3rd, 1988. She was working as a nanny for Linda and Mark Kavanagh a property tycoon of Ballyorny House Enniscary. Priscilla had gone horse-riding with Linda, who was later found drowned in the nearby Dargal River. Priscilla's body was never found. Or what about Eva Brennan? At 39, she had also vanished into thin air on Sunday, July 5th, 1993, after leaving her parents' house in Terenure, South Dublin. She'd gone for Sunday lunch, but left after a minor row. She was dressed in a pink tracksuit, but there were no sightings of her. There was no sign even that she'd made it back to her apartment in Rathgar. Eva had been suffering from depression from the time she was 16, but her family were convinced she'd been murdered. And that wasn't to mention 22-year-old Amelda Keenan, missing from Waterford since January 3rd, 1994, last seen in leopard print trousers and a denim jacket. Or 35-year-old Marie Kilmartin, who vanished in Port Leash, County Leash, in December 1993. And was found six months later strangled and dumped in a bog. New leads thrown up as a result of tip-offs were about to refocus the team on the three women they had originally prioritised. Annie, Jojo and Deirdre. Larry Murphy was working in Newbridge when Deirdre Jacob disappeared. And Johnny Fox's pub in Len Cullen had been refurbished at the time Annie McCarrick disappeared. Had Murphy been one of the carpenters who'd worked on the pub? Just over a year after a vanished documentary aired on ABC in America, Larry Murphy was led by a prison officer into the belly of Dublin's wood-panelled Central Criminal Court, sitting in Court Number 2. It was Friday, May 11th, 2001, and he was about to discover what punishment the courts considered appropriate for raping and trying to murder a woman 15 months earlier. Murphy had been brought to the court in a prison van, having been previously remanded in custody by Judge Thomas Balla on April 26th at Nace District Court, where he'd replied, guilty.
1: It was the one thing wasn't expected, it wasn't anticipated. It certainly wasn't anticipated by his defence team. Because I saw it myself, I saw his defence team look at one another in amazement. You know, like, yeah, I asked my client to be arraigned as to do, so he stands up and guilty, not guilty, to the charge indictment, guilty. as sat back down. And we had expected a lengthy trial, you know, but he pleaded guilty. You had Carney sitting on the bench, Judge Carney, and Judge Carney was big into sentence, but so much time off for pleading guilty, for saving the victim from getting into the witness box, number one. But number two, the details of the crime never emerged. You didn't have her in the witness box saying, he did this and then he, you know, which would have been an eye-opener for many people, and maybe it could have struck a chord with someone, you know, as the details, because the details of it would have been harrowing, and the way, how he operated, how he snatched the crime, what he did to her. Sitting in the wood-paneled courtroom
0: under a wine-colored canopy, Judge Paul Carney cleared his throat and looked over the rims of his spectacles. I find little point in saying that this was one of the worst cases to come before the court because my experience is that when I do that, a worse case probably comes before me the following week, he pronounced in a distinct Anglo-Irish accent. Judge Carney then, in a matter-of-fact fashion, handed down a sentence of 15 years with an additional four years for the assault and three for the robbery to run concurrently with the 15-year sentence to start from February 11, 2000. The judge said he would suspend the final year of each sentence due to Murphy's guilty plea. Larry Murphy collapsed in a heap on the courtroom floor. He had fainted. Jill sat quaking in the court. Asked twice by Judge Carney if she wanted to say anything during the two-hour hearing, she twice said she could not. Operation Trace closed its door in NACE in 2003 and was subsumed back into the NBCI in Harcourt Square. The filing cabinets with all the missing women's cases were relocated there too. The claim that Larry Murphy might have worked or socialised in Johnny Fox's pub where Annie McCarrick may have been last seen, could not be made stand-up. Although Larry Murphy could be linked to a job in Newbridge at the time of Deirdre Jacobs' disappearance, without a body or a confession, there was no proof that he'd anything to do with her case. While serving his sentence in Arbour Hill, Larry Murphy spent his days in the prison's joiner's shop, where he made podiums for the 2003 Special Olympics and made rocking horses that he sold to prison officers for their children. He was considered a model prisoner, And this safeguarded his automatic entitlement to have a quarter of his sentence shaved off for good behaviour, meaning he was only required to serve ten and a half years for the brutal rape and attempted murder of Jill. With his release date set for August 12th, 2010, there were many questions about whether or not Larry Murphy would have to register as a sex offender, as per the Sex Offenders Act following his release from prison. Superintendent Eamon Kyo of his local Baltinglass Garda Station said that Murphy would be expected to comply with the Sex Offenders Act. If he moves out of the area, he has to notify us. And if he fails to do so, then that is an offence, Kyo said. Despite the reassurances as Murphy's release date approached, fears grew amongst the community of Baltinglass, as well as the wider area of the so called Vanishing Triangle. In early 2010, hunters found a grave-sized pit on the grounds of Humewood Castle in Kiltegan, close to where Murphy viciously attacked his only known rape victim. While they may otherwise have ignored the strangeness on the landscape, the imminent release of Murphy meant that there was a heightened sense of awareness to anything with the possibility of relevance. The pit was six feet long, two and a half feet wide and three feet deep. It looked like it had been dug years before it was discovered and was covered with moss. Was this going to provide the smoking gun to link him to the unsolved crimes and was one of the families to be given answers to the aching questions about what happened to their loved one? Guardy conducted a small dig and soil samples were taken away for analysis but hopes of a breakthrough were dashed when there weren't any traces found to conclude that a body had been buried in the pit. As August loomed, officers decided that they had to front up Murphy and see what he speak to them about any of the missing girls, or even about his plans for release. In prison, they were told he'd been a bit of a loner, although he'd spent time with his old pal David Lawler and with the killer Frank McCann, who'd murdered his wife and child in a dreadful fire in the family home in an effort to cover up an affair he was having. Behind bars, Murphy was in no mood to talk and he refused totally to cooperate in any way with the officers, even by way of telling them what he planned to do when he got out. While he'd been unlucky that night when the hunters found him in the woods attempting to kill his victim... He had dodged a few bullets ever since, none more shocking than the sex offenders register. Despite lots of debate and promises over whether or not he was to be placed on the register and a spokesperson for the Department of Justice stating that he would, it seemed that Murphy's timing had actually been impeccable. As he had been sentenced for his brutal crimes one month before the act was introduced, it was decided that it could not apply to him, as the law is not retrospective. However, Gardy reassured the public that he would be the subject to post-release supervision, with many sources saying that given the brazenness of Murphy's attack, it was unlikely to be his only offence, meaning that they would keep tabs on him on his release. But many knew that would not be feasible given the manpower it would take and the fact that Murphy would have served his time and be free to do as he wished. When the focus turned to Murphy's family and their likelihood to give him refuge, his brother Tom made it patently clear that his disgraced brother would not be welcome in his home. I want to make it clear to the locals in my village in Wicklow that Larry Murphy will not be living with me, my partner Helen, nor my kids, he said. Tom also said he had received numerous threats, including one to burn down his home, should his brother be staying at his house. Thursday 13th of August 2010, and at 4am outside Arbor Hill Prison, guardy arrived to erect barriers on the road. Behind the high gates, infamous rapist Larry Murphy was spending his final night asleep on the inside. Ten years and six months after his brutal sex attack on Jill, the time had finally come for him to pack up and leave. And at 10.17am that morning, he emerged from the darkness. Eyes hidden behind sunglasses, a navy and white baseball cap firmly pulled down around his ears, he remained unshakable as he faced a crowd of onlookers who shouted rapist and dirty scumbag at him. As he walked free from the prison, his body appeared toned and sculpted, broader and more bulked out than it was before. The muscles on his jawline were clenched and square, and anyone might have mistaken him for a bodybuilder or a professional gym instructor, but for his colour, a yellow pallor, giving him away as a man who'd spent a decade inside. Even though he held his head high, Murphy didn't so much as glance at the press photographers with their cameras held imposingly in his face trying to get a picture. Nor did he speak a single word. His attire, a black hooded sweatshirt with a gold New York Yankees logo emblazoned on the front, baggy jeans and Nike runners looked dated in the cold light of 2010. His mouth, a thin line as he concentrated on his walk, Larry was alone in the world and he'd lost everything. There was no children, no wife, no friends, no family waiting. Nobody showed up to collect him from prison. And instead, he hopped into a grey taxi as a Garda helicopter hovered overhead. As the car took off, three motorcyclists, Gardaí and various journalists followed in hot pursuit. Everyone wanted to know where Larry Murphy was going and what he intended to do next. Previously a hunter, he was now the prey. What came as unexpected was his first stop-off, Kulak Garda Station. There, he made a complaint that he was being harassed by members of the media, but he didn't disclose to officers where he was planning to live. By 1pm, he was on the run again as media and unmarked Garda cars followed him towards Grafton Street, where he jumped out of the taxi and sped towards Stephens Green on foot vanishing from view He quickly shed his hat and the hoodie as he blended in with other people in the busy shopping district But despite his attempts to escape, his whereabouts were quickly re-established by Gardee. Later that evening, a public meeting was held at Grange Con Boxing Club in West Wicklow to discuss concerns about Murphy We knew where he was for the last 10 years, we don't know where he is now and we want to know at all times one man told the crowd of up to a hundred terrified locals. I have had nightmares thinking about him and I couldn't sleep last night, a woman said. I'm living in fear. I'm 31 years old. I feel I need a chaperone to go out at night. It's really, really frightening. Meanwhile, over 70 kilometres away in North County, Dublin, a crowd had gathered outside a government-run halfway house for ex-convicts, Pryorswood House, amid speculation that Murphy was staying there. They began chanting, get him out. But the director of the house denied he was and they quickly moved away. Murphy's family would land the final blow of the night by distancing themselves again from the predator, calling him out for his indecency and reminding him that he was not welcome back home. He hadn't even the manners this morning or the decency when he came outside that prison gate to say sorry to that poor girl, Thomas Murphy told the media. I want nothing to do with him ever again. I don't want to see him and I don't want to hear from him. When Larry Murphy went missing off Grafton Street that day he was released from prison, he disappeared from the public eye, managing to go incognito for many, many months. As journalists pieced together bits of information from sources, a picture emerged of a predator well able to live independently and to move about alone but with confidence. He'd spent time in a bedsit in Dublin for three weeks before he fled Ireland for France, where he was closely monitored by French police. Next, he'd moved on to the Netherlands, where he settled into the buzzing city of Amsterdam, sampling many of its seedier delights. At the start of November 2010, a man was sitting in an Irish pub in the city when a pale-faced man with a beard caught his eye. They began to chat and the man said he was a carpenter and spoke about how he'd been in the city for five weeks and was staying in a local hostel. He also mentioned he'd been in France and had plans soon to move to Germany. The man, it turned out, was Larry Murphy and it wasn't long before the media were on his tail. Soon he moved again and by the following year he was living in Barcelona in Spain taking casual labour as a carpenter on boats. Little is known about his time there or who he was in contact with but Irish authorities were made aware of him when his passport was robbed by a prostitute near the infamous Las Ramblas and he had to return to Ireland to get a new one. It was May 2011 when he flew back to Dublin amid another media frenzy, but he managed to lay low in hotels and B&Bs while he waited for his new documents. By June, Murphy boarded a ferry at Rosslare in County Wexford and headed back to Cherbourg, where he took a train from the port to Paris and disappeared again. A year later, he was tracked down to Holland, this time spotted with a friend, a notorious Irish double rapist who'd met behind bars. Together, they were living in Amsterdam and working at a logistics company with plenty of money to spend on booze and women. With Operation Trace disbanded, Detective Garda Alan Bailey had been charged with managing all the files as part of his new brief at a city centre station. He'd later be handpicked for the newly established Garda's cold case unit. And on the day he started that new role, he brought the boxes with him. He'd long hoped for a breakthrough in any of the cases which had pretty much taken over the latter part of his career. As he sat in an interview room across the table from an inmate who'd befriended Murphy behind bars, he wondered, was this
1: finally it? In 2011, there's a contact from the prison. I'm, contact, I'm contacted and asked would I go down to the prison and talk to a, a prisoner who served an anti sentence. The prisoner said that Larry and himself had shared a, a number of late-night boozing sessions at Arbor Hill Prison, drinking a prison vodka. They make this in the prison kitchen. It's pure potato, but they'd blow the head off you. Great, great stuff. And they said we were there one night, we started bragging about our criminal exploits. And, you know, it's like two men talking when you see the one I had. So they were talking about, I did this, well, I did this, you know, the chap who was, who was talking to us admitted his crime, and a particularly gory crime. But Larry said, well, wait, till tell you what I did. So he tells the man that he's driving past, out, out of Newbridge Town on a quiet country road, he sees a girl stand at a gate, he calls her over, and in the car he has a map. So he's lying across, he's a passenger's window down, he lies across at Maria with the map, holding the map up, and she looks in, and as she does, he grabs her by the hair, drags her into the car, hits her with a hammer, shoves her down into the well of the seat and drove off. She started struggling in the car, so he hit her and had actually killed her. So he drove across the country, uh, over to the and Lakes area, where he disposed of the body. It was a believable scenario. And the man that was talking had nothing to gain. He wasn't going to get time off for good behaviour. He wasn't going to get time off for cooperating with the Gardaí. You know that wasn't an option. The information
0: was still sketchy, but it was worth acting on. And on a cold December day in 2012, a specialist team, with the assistance of the Garda Síobháid unit, trolled parts of a Wicklow lake looking for the missing student's body. Nothing was found. Without a specific location. It was like looking for a needle in a haystack. By the summer of 2014, Larry Murphy, who had begun going by the name of Lawrence, had found love with a well-to-do, highly respected jewellery designer in his new base in London. Liz, not her real name, had enjoyed a romance with Lawrence over several weeks and he'd regularly stayed over at the posh London home where she lived with roommates. But he'd always arrived late at night and was gone by morning, before the others could meet him. Two of her roommates, an Irish businessman from the Midlands and his partner, had regularly told Liz to bring her boyfriend over for a glass of wine, but their invites were always turned down. Then, during a spell of good weather in May of 2014, they decided to have friends over and enjoy some alfresco dining at their period property. Again they told Liz to bring her lover along, and to everyone's surprise, she finally agreed. As the barbecue's coals were lit Lawrence arrived and was introduced to the Irishman, Shane and his partner who owned the house. Shane just couldn't take his eyes off this odd job man who'd stolen the heart of his tenant and had introduced himself as Lawrence from Mayo. The other guests thought he was a bit of an odd character but they assumed it was sort of just shyness. But Shane just could not stop staring. Just like the man at the bar in Amsterdam, he knew he knew that face from somewhere. After a few glasses of wine, the penny dropped. And rushing inside, Shane pulled pictures of Larry Murphy on the internet only to find news stories about the rape in Carlo and how he was suspect in the disappearances of Deirdre Jacob, Jojo Dullard and Annie McCarrick. He called his partner and Liz into the house on the pretense of helping with food, but instead held a crisis meeting about Lawrence's real identity i recognize you you're larry murphy shane said as he stormed outside no you're wrong i'm not larry murphy and i can prove it but as he realized the gig was up he grabbed his things and was escorted out of the house it had been a heady night And later the group decided to contact the police to inform them of the incident and give them what information they could about Larry Murphy's life in London. The cops arrived, but they told them they couldn't arrest him as he hadn't done anything wrong. They did caution Shane to lock his doors and his windows and to keep a watch out. Some days after... The blow up at the house, a detective from Brixton police station visited Murphy's distraught girlfriend and her roommates, and he told them that they'd seen an article in The Sunday World about Larry Murphy and the barbecue. They urged them to keep the information tight and told them that now officers knew where Murphy was. They could monitor him, suggesting, of course, that they hadn't before then. In the weeks after the incident, Liz got back in touch with Murphy and her roommates even suspected that she continued to bring him to the house late at night, despite knowing about his background. In 2018, the case of Deirdre Jacobs' disappearance was upgraded to murder, with Gardy saying they had received vital, new, credible and corroborated information that led to Larry Murphy becoming the chief suspect in the murder of the 18-year-old. However... While the news was a breakthrough in the case, it was a devastating blow for her parents who'd always held on to hope that she might turn up alive and well. Speaking outside Nays Garda station, her heartbroken parents, Bernadette and Michael, said, No one wants to hear their child has been murdered. It's a shock when you hear those cold words. While exact details of the new information could not be revealed for operational reasons, Gardy said that it was of such significance to upgrade the case to murder without the discovery of her body. The information is substantial and a murder investigation has been launched, Chief Superintendent Brian Sutton of Nays Garda Station said. We deal with evidence, not rumour or speculation, and this new development is significant. By February 2020, Gardy prepared all their evidence in the case and sent a file linking Larry Murphy to the murder of Deirdre Jacob to the Director of Public Prosecutions. Last year, the DPP sent their file to a specialist barrister for a second opinion on the case. Sources say it is at a critical point as they await specialist legal review and if the DPP finds that he has a case to answer, Guardi will seek the extradition of Larry Murphy to Ireland. While officers keep their cards close to their chest, they are still working with the UK police to discreetly monitor Murphy and say he's been working on building sites there. They still hope for a real breakthrough though. Last year, a dig took place at a wooded area in Brule East after a witness told Gardy that he had seen a car with an open boot reversing into the area, almost 18 kilometres from Newbridge on the day Deirdre vanished. Nothing relating to the case was found during the excavation. According to sources, Larry remains in the UK, where he's been living and working between London and Birmingham. He hasn't come to the attention of police in the UK for any criminal offences. Should the DPP order him to answer for the case of murder Deirdre Jacob he will be placed before a court but it's unlikely he would plead guilty. Without Deirdre's body it'll be harder for prosecutors to secure a murder conviction. Only once before was a murder case brought before the courts in Ireland without a body. In 2014 Martin Early was put on trial for the murder of 28-year-old Sandra Collins who'd vanished in 2000. The last confirmed sighting of Sandra had been on the night of Monday, December 4th, 2000 at approximately 11pm at the Country Kitchen Chipper on George's Street in Kalala in County Mayo. Earlier that day, she'd found out she was pregnant and she wanted to tell Early with whom she was having an affair. The fleece jacket she was wearing that evening was found at Kalala Pier days later. Early admitted to the court that he would a sexual relationship with her around the time of her disappearance, but he denied being involved in her death. The evidence in the trial was totally circumstantial. Not only was there no body, but there was no murder weapon and no crime scene. After a four-week trial, Early walked free, when there was a ruling that there wasn't sufficient evidence to find him guilty. Mr. Justice Patrick McCarthy directed the jury to acquit him. As of March 2022, Larry Murphy has been ruled out as a person of interest in the cases of Fiona Pender, Fiona Sinnott and Kira Breen. With circumstantial evidence linking Murphy to the disappearances of Jojo Dullard and Annie McCarrick, he remains a suspect in those cases. Predator was developed from the original Sunday World booklet by Nevo O'Connor and updated by Claude Amini. It is produced by Ian Mullaney and read and edited by Nicola Talent. Predator is a podcast from Crime World.